0: copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 3 this morning, Romans chapter 3, and as you were doing so, please stand once again for the reading of God's Holy Word. It is Reformation Sunday, which I'll explain in a moment, uh, but for now, suffice it to say, we are taking uh, a brief break this Lord's Day from our sermon series, Through Lamentations, and we are going to pick up on a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 3, namely, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Let me read now in your hearing the very word of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seats. If you're one of those who has ever owned a somewhat older home, you'll know that one of its treasures is its wood floors. sometimes concealed by carpet or just plain old wear and tear. There, right below the surface, quite literally in this case, is something lovely in an effort to restore their former glory. You might, you might sand off those wood floors. You might try to buff them out. You, you might stain them or, or finish them. But the point is what was once beautiful has over time been obscured. And you want to see that beauty restored. While well, redeeming grace, the same is true When it comes to the gospel. The glory of the gospel can so easily be covered up. Or maligned. Or forgotten. Or taken for granted. Or just plain discarded. Believe it or not, this does happen. And dare I say, it has happened. Consider Ligonier's 2022 State of Theology Survey. In an effort to take a pulse on America's view of Christianity, Ligonier performs a biannual survey where they ask a host of questions related to the Christian faith. Here's one of those questions. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Let me me repeat that. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Now catch this, of the more than 3,000 who responded to this survey, 20% strongly disagreed, 13% somewhat disagreed, and another 10% were not sure. Or, to state it differently, nearly half of those surveyed didn't understand one of the basic fundamental realities of the gospel. Namely, that our righteousness is found in Christ alone. The takeaway? The gospel is obscured. And not just in the world, beloved, but even among professed Christians. The gospel is like those old wood floors covered covered with grime and grit so that their beauty is concealed. What we need then is clarity. Clarity regarding the gospel. And that is what we are going to pursue this Reformation Sunday. Now, just so that we're all on the same page, again, today is Reformation Sunday and the origins of this day go all the way back to to the 16th century, 1517 to be exact. It was then on October 31st, 1517, the eve of All Hallows' Day, when Martin Luther, that ornery German monk, nailed his 95 theses to the church door there at Wittenberg. And those theses, that event... It sparked a fire that led to the Protestant Reformation. And by God's grace, that is a fire that continues to burn hot even to this day. And so to honor Reformation Sunday and the recovery of the gospel from the darkness of Roman Catholicism, we will turn our attention this morning to the glory, to the beauty of to the power and to the downright sufficiency of the gospel. Really, what I want you to see is that our righteousness, every single ounce of it, is found not in us, but in Christ. Beloved, Christ is our very righteousness. Now, we will see this by looking at Romans chapter 3. And I want to say at the front end that this section of Scripture is absolutely pivotal. In fact, Luther referred to Paul's letter to the Romans as a little New Testament. And then, Luther went so far as to call this little section of Scripture in front of us this morning a little Romans. Why? Why? Well, because right here in these few verses, we discover the heart and soul of the Reformation. We discover the heart and soul of the gospel, don't we? So what I want to do this morning is simply uncover, right? I want to make plain and and lift up and draw your attention to five fundamental facts about the gospel. And I want to do so not just so that we can tickle our intellects, though the gospel does require that we believe it with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But but really, I want us to swim out into the ocean of God's gospel, trusting that God's Spirit will create and sustain and nourish faith, bolster assurance, provoke worship, induce joy, and fuel discipleship. To that end, here is the first fundamental fact of the gospel. The gospel is for sinners. The gospel is for sinners. Or if you prefer, the gospel is not for those who have everything figured out. It's not for those who have their lives put together. It's not for those who are good people. The gospel is for sinners. It's for wretches. It's for us. Now, of course, if we would be honest with both ourselves and the Word of God, we'd quickly come to acknowledge this reality, the reality that we are all, in fact, sinners. Contrary to popular opinion, there are no good people roaming the world among us. Even your sweet grandma is a sinner. And this is what scripture tells us, right? Right there in the middle of our passage, right there in verse 23, we read for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So so who has sinned? You asked? Well, scripture answers, all have sinned. You, me, everyone. There's there's a story that floats around about the times And this instance years and years and years ago in which they sent out an inquiry to all sorts of famous authors at the time. And they asked them this question. What's wrong with the world today? And they were hoping to elicit from these authors some big, long, detailed essay that that they would spend and and answer that question and then they, they would publish in their magazine. Or their newspaper, I should say. Well, rather than submit some detailed tome, supposedly, Chesterton responded, Dear Sir, I am. And that was his essay. And there's something profound about that. Something altogether accurate about that. What's wrong with the world today? You are. I am. You see, before we can offer the remedy... We have to diagnose the disease. And the disease we are all infected with is sin. That's our problem. You see, our biggest problem today is not loneliness, or how to deal with accelerated technology, or climate change, or a lack of education, or the opposing political party, or fatherless homes or poverty, or fascism, or obesity, or self-control, or the decline of the nuclear family. That's not our biggest problem. Now those all might be symptoms, I'll grant you that, but they are not the disease. The disease is sin, and it is terminal. But at this point, so many are quick to push back. They think, perhaps you think, I'm not that bad. How dare you, pastor? I'm not a a sinner. We tend to sort of recoil at these charges, don't we? Tempted to think that the stuff in Romans 3 about sinning and falling short of the glory of God, well, well, that might be true of others. That might be true of those out there. But not me. You have to understand that when we say that, what we are saying is something like this. The gospel is not for us. The gospel is for them outside. It's for those who are really like jacked up. But not me. Those who make a living on OnlyFans, sure, that makes sense. Those living under a tarp at the the ball field, yeah, they they probably need the gospel. But not me. I do my best. I really am a good person. Am I Perfect? No, who is? But a sinner? Hardly. Nearly a hundred years ago, C.S. Lewis faced the same opposition. He noted The barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience any sense of sin. More recently, Jerry Bridges observed, the whole idea of sin has virtually disappeared from our culture. And and I want to submit to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that, that I think in an effort to throw off God and to cleanse our consciences, we have simply devolved to the point where we now rename sin. We rename it in an effort to sanitize it in an effort to sort of baptize it, hoping that it will sort of wash away all the filthiness. So, for example, murdering pre-born children is now health care. Right? Homosexuality is love. Disobedient children are merely sowing wild oats. Derelict fathers... Are just trying to find themselves and gossip is offering prayer requests my friends just because we refuse to acknowledge our sin doesn't make it any less sinful you can deny the law of gravity all day long but if you attempt to walk off of your roof this afternoon you are in for a cruel dose of reality The fact is, we are all sinners. If God makes anything plain in the pages of Scripture, it is that. We are sinners, and we deserve the judgment of God. There is something good about this, at least about facing this. I say that because we have to understand the darkness and death of our sin if we are ever to truly see the light and life Christ, As sinners, we deserve judgment, which means, please hear this, our only hope of escape from judgment is what? Righteousness. This is so important. To stand right in God's sight will require that we be righteous. After all, God himself is righteous. The prophet Habakkuk warns us, speaking of God, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So to be in God's presence requires that we be as righteous as God is righteous. Or if you want to use the language of Proverbs 11.4, righteousness is what delivers from death. The question then is, well, where do we find this righteousness? And the answer is, in the gospel. Which brings us to our second fundamental fact. The gospel is received by faith. Here's the deal. The gospel is not the law, and the law is not the gospel. And although the law spoke of the gospel, the law was not the gospel. Consider verse 21. We read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, notice the language, apart from the law. Right? So so the righteousness of God, that, that is to say God's saving action, whereby He fits us for His presence, it does not come from the law. It's not by your own doing. This is not something where you and I sort of hop on our spiritual treadmills and think that we can burn off all of our sin calories. The gospel, this righteousness that we need, doesn't come from the law. Remember, righteousness is what is required. There is no grading on a curve here. When it comes to the law of God, what God requires is that you obey His law personally, and perfectly, and perpetually. That is how righteousness is achieved. That's where the bar is set. It's not down here or even up here. It's like at the moon. And you're not going to get there. But while the law doesn't provide righteousness, this isn't to suggest the law is silent regarding righteousness. You'll notice Paul is clear in verse twenty-one: the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Right. So this righteousness of God is something the law doesn't provide, but it does something that the law talks about. Paul's saying something like this: the Old Testament itself it pointed forward to Christ. It it testified to the gospel. But Christ and his gospel, that that righteousness, it is not found in the Old Testament itself. Just as, say, for example, your grocery list. It points forward to and contains information about food for your pantry. But that list itself is not your food, is it? Well, so it is with the Old Testament and Christ. It points forward to Christ. It points forward to the gospel. It points forward to this righteousness. But it is not that righteousness. So where does the guilty sinner find this righteousness that he so desperately needs? Middle of verse 22. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Or the middle of verse 25, to be received by faith. Or end of verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus. Please don't miss this. As sinful and fallen creatures, the law offers no hope, no respite, and no shelter. But Christ does. The gospel does. And Christ and his gospel are received by faith. Or we could say, by faith, we receive the righteousness of Christ, who himself is the gospel. Don't get tripped up here. Faith is not our righteousness. Faith is not our righteousness. It's not like God looks down on our faith and on that basis, oh, that person has faith, okay, I'll declare them righteous. That's not it. We know that's not it because first of all, faith doesn't do anything. Faith doesn't keep God's law. There's nothing virtuous or meritorious or righteous about our faith. And secondly, and most importantly, most of the time our faith is shaky at best. Isn't it? Our faith is not our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. Who He is and what He has done. We don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in Christ, in His perfect life, His meritorious law-keeping, His only ever-loving God with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength, and His loving His neighbor as Himself. It is Christ that is our righteousness. Then what is faith, you ask? Faith is merely how we lay hold of Christ. Think of it this way. We are terminal again with the disease of sin. Christ is our life-giving medicine. He heals us. He restores us. He brings us back from the pit of death and gives us everlasting life. Faith? Faith is simply the syringe that brings the medicine of Christ to our souls. So the gospel is received by faith, and by that we mean we receive Christ and all of his benefits, not by our works, but by lifting up the empty hands of faith and receiving him and all his work. And therefore, that brings us to the third fundamental fact of the gospel. The gospel is how we stand right in God's sight. Remember, righteousness is what is required. And it is, verse 22, the righteousness of God that we receive in the gospel to really grasp the beauty of what is being told us here, we have to wrestle with three key theological terms. What I'm going to call this morning the grammar of the gospel. And those three terms are found in verses 24 and 25. Let me give them to you. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Now very briefly, I realize that it is the default of some To immediately be dismissive at this point. To think that by me saying what I just said, I sort of gave you permission to nod off. After all, I did just drop a couple of $5 words. But I would caution you. Caution you against such an attitude. These are Bible words. Right? These are words that God's Spirit has given to the church to teach us something of the wonder and the glory of the gospel. So rather than you and I sort of pull back at this point, it would do well for our souls to lean in. Think of someone who has just matched 5 of the mega million dollar or the, was it the mega millions? Think, think of someone who's matched 5 of those 6 numbers. How they sort of lean in. They lean in waiting on that 6th and final number in anticipation. Well, so we ought to lean in to justification and redemption and propitiation. We, We do recognize, right, that these gospel truths are infinitely more valuable than any mega millions jackpot. So let's start by leaning into justification. Verse 24 announces that we are justified by His grace as a gift. We're justified. What does it mean to be justified? Well, as you've heard me say, to be justified is to be right in God's sight. If we wanted to unpack that a bit, we could say that justification is that act by which God judicially declares a person to be righteous in his sight. The gavel, as it were, in the courts of heaven descends, and as it does, as that, that gavel is banged, the judge of all of the earth declares not, not guilty, and he declares not innocent, but the declaration is the declaration of righteous. It is a positive declaration of you and I being in right conformity to God and his law. And here's the key. We are declared to be righteous. We are justified on account of Christ. It's not our works. It's not our life. It's not our attitude. It's not our intentions. It's not our religious devotion. It is not our experiences. None of that is the ground or basis for our justification. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is all our justification. Next word in the grammar of the gospel is the word redemption. Still in verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You might think of it this way. If the language of justification is language that comes from the courthouse, well, redemption is language that comes from the marketplace. More specifically, it implies a price paid to obtain the release of a captive. Which, of course, presupposes some sort of captivity or slavery, right? And so the point Paul is making here is something like this. You and I are slaves to our sin, to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. And because we are in bondage to our own self and to our own sin, we are therefore in rebellion to God. And to be in rebellion to God is to be destined for hell and destruction. But God has seen fit to intervene on our behalf. To redeem us. To buy us back. To make us His own. Just as God intervened to redeem ancient Israel from the tyranny of Pharaoh, right? So God has, through His gospel, intervened to redeem us, to rescue us from the penalty and power of sin. The final word I would draw your attention to is found in verse 25. It's the word propitiation. This word doesn't come from the courthouse or the marketplace, but from the temple precincts. As you are probably aware, the old covenant required a variety of sacrifices. And all of those sacrifices, what they really did was enable the holy God to live with his rather unholy people. And while I'm not going to go into all the various sacrifices now, it is important to understand that all of those sacrifices really had two basic purposes. One was expiation. The other, propitiation. And both of those involved removal. But removal in fundamentally different directions. Here's what I mean. Expiation has to do with the removal of sin. It is the the taking away, the wiping away of sin. Propitiation, though, has to do with the removal of wrath. It means that God's wrath, which is provoked by our sin, is placated or satisfied. Now I recognize even the mention of God's wrath is enough in certain quarters to cause even professed Christians to set their hair on fire. It seems that we have, in this day and age, an allergy to any idea of God actually being angry at sin. But make no mistake about it, cultural sensitivities aside, God is just, and God is righteous, and God is holy, and God is perfect. And therefore, when God is met with sin, he meets sin with his wrath. Let's be clear, our sin provokes God's wrath, so much so that our sin is an affront to Him, to His character, beloved, to God's very being. And so again, when God is confronted with sin, He meets it head-on with His wrath, which is His judgment. Now let me be quick to say, just in passing, that that is exactly what hell is. Hell is not a place that God just sort of abandons and hands over to Satan as if Satan himself were lord over hell. No. Hell is the final destiny of all those created beings who have rebelled against their Creator. And the point to make here is that in hell, God is not absent. What will be absent in hell is any grace or mercy or kindness. But God himself is not absent. The terrifying reality is, is that God is altogether present in hell. He is present to pour out his unmitigated wrath upon sinners. The glory of glory. In the gospel, God has been propitiated. His wrath has been removed. How so? Verse 25 again whom God put forward, speaking of Christ, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, through the death of Christ, the wrath of God has been satisfied. Let's press a little bit further. This is simply too glorious not to. Again, as we've said, our sin provokes God's wrath. And so what God does in the gospel is that Christ, God's Son, becomes our substitute. And He is treated as a sinner on the cross. Which means that as Christ is sort of lifted up there between heaven and earth on that fateful day, it is not just darkness that descends upon the land... But the darkness is ominous of what? Well, the darkness is meant to symbolize nothing less than the very judgment of God descending upon Christ. This is why Galatians 3 teaches us, for example, that Christ was cursed for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes so far as to say that he who knew no sin was made to be sin. Beloved, the very wrath of God that you deserve for your sin, Christ endured for you. So that God is no longer angry at you because of your sin. That's what it means for God to be propitiated. Propitiation doesn't mean that all of God's wrath for your past sins has been satisfied and now you better walk on eggshells going forward and not screw this up. I've said this before, propitiation is not probation. God's wrath against your sins, past, present, and future, has been meted out. God is no longer, as it were, up in heaven, vein popping out of his head, just holding in this pent-up rage for you. It's all been spent on Christ. Just back up with me for a second. Let's get a lay of the land. Think back to that grammar that we've just unpacked. In the gospel, we are justified, meaning we are imputed Christ's very righteousness. In this same gospel, we are also redeemed, meaning Christ has purchased us from our slavery to sin and death. And in the gospel, God has been propitiated. Again, meaning that Christ has removed the wrath of God that was against you for your sin. Here's the punchline though. What this all means is that now we are welcomed into God's presence. That's the payoff. Right? We are sinners turned saints who now, because of Christ, are joyfully welcomed into God's presence as God's people forever. Or if we were to echo that great covenantal promise that rings throughout the pages of Scripture from beginning to end, in the gospel, this is God's commitment to you and I. God says, I will be their God, and they will be God. My people. Now if all that wasn't enough, this is all owing to God's grace, which is now the fourth fundamental fact of the gospel. The gospel is owing to God's grace. All of this, everything we've seen, it grow, it's the fruit that grows up in the soil of God's grace. Or as verse 24 testifies, we are justified by His grace as a gift. Beloved, it's all about what God has done through Christ in the Gospel. So that justification and redemption and propitiation and about a million other wonderful Gospel words, it is all accomplished by God in Christ through His Spirit for us. Which means that salvation is the result of God and not the result of you. That's what we mean by grace. And in a lot of ways, this was at the heart of the Reformation. The medieval church had so cluttered the gospel that it became anthropocentric man-centered. When in reality, the gospel is thoroughly theocentric. It's God-centered. Right? So so rather than the gospel all being about God's grace to save sinners, what happens? Well, in the medieval church, it sort of develops into things like penance and indulgences and purgatory. You know what the common denominator in all that stuff is? It's about what you do. Have you made penance? Have you purchased indulgences? Are you ready for purgatory? It's all stuff you do. And let's be clear, this all remains the official position of the Roman Catholic Church even to this very hour, which is why they are an apostate church. But before our Reformed heads swell... We, too, must guard the purity and the potency of the gospel, lest we clutter it with our own Protestant accrudiments. What do I mean? Well, I mean the grace of God revealed in Christ is our only sure foundation. As we just confessed in song, everything else is sinking sand. For example... Your daily Bible reading or your stellar or not so stellar grace-filled parenting is not rebar for your soul. Things like your attendance at prayer meeting, your over-the-top hospitality, your aggressive evangelism, your faithful homeschooling, your diligent service work, none of that is the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. That stuff is all good, and you probably should do those things, but none of it is the gospel. None of it is the basis for our standing before God, and the second that we trust in those kinds of activities, no matter how good or God-honoring they may be, the second that we trust in them, thinking that by them we can somehow curry favor with God, well, the second we do that is the second we do violence To the grace of God and His gospel. You see, the heart cry of the Reformation, beloved, was rightly sola gratia, grace alone. But really, sola gratia is just shorthand for solus Christus, Christ alone. Which means we must fight every urge to smuggle in our works, our resume our attitude, or our feelings as to, as the basis or the foundation for our standing before God. All such things will be washed away as the tides of life come in and go out. Come in and go out. True stability, though, is found in the rock-solid promise of God acting in Christ to save Sinners by grace. And God saving sinners by gifting them with all the righteousness they will ever need. The very righteousness of Christ. But even with all that said, we do have something of a thorny problem here. Perhaps it is not immediately perceived, but I assure you it is there. What is that thorny dilemma, you ask? Well, how is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising His righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? Feel the weight of that? We are sinners in and of ourselves, and we are not righteous. And yet, God declares us as righteous. Does that mean, then, That God is soft on sin. Is justification just a farce? As the Roman Catholic Church in the days of the Reformers called it, is it a legal fiction? Right? Are we to put our justification on par with Jack and the Beanstalk? Is that what we're doing here? Is this all just a creative story that we're telling ourselves? Well, thankfully, no. Truth be told, the gospel is how God magnifies his grace and justice, which is now the fifth and final fundamental fact of the gospel that I want us to see this Reformation Sunday. Pick it up with me with me in the middle of verse 25. This was to show forth. This, the, the death of Christ, this. The death of Christ was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was, verse 26 now, to show his righteousness, it is God's righteousness, at the present time. So that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The point, how is it that God forgave and counted righteous the likes of Adam and Abraham, Jacob and Moses, Joshua and Samuel, Isaiah and Daniel, me and you? Well, when it comes to the Old Testament saints, God, end of verse 25, had passed over their former sins. In other words, in His patience, He put up with their sin. He he tolerated it, if we can put it that way. But He did so looking forward to what would be accomplished in the gospel. But now on this side of the bloody cross, now God's righteousness has gone viral. How so? Well, because the cross proves once and for all that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 26. Catch this with the cross erected in the middle of human history, no longer can God be charged with being unrighteous, or unjust, or soft on sin. You see, church, God is altogether just because on the cross, our sin was dealt with. Abraham's sin and my sin. Jeremiah's sin and your sin none of it none of it is swept under the rug it's not like God just sort of winks at it it's not like he, he you know, puts his hand behind his back and crosses his fingers no the full weight of God's judgment was brought to bear against that sin on the cross Christ bore the weight of it in his own body. He stood there in our place and he paid the penalty that we owed for our sin. And by doing so, he satisfied the wrath of God. That's how God's justice is magnified. Please recognize Not one sin, not, we would say today, not one peccadillo, not one little teensy weensy white lie, not one sin is let off. Every sin of the elect is paid for in the death of Christ. And every sin of the reprobate is punished in the torments of hell. So that in both cases, sin is dealt with. Or to use the language of verse 26, because sin is dealt with, every single sin is accounted for and dealt with, God, verse 26, is just. He's just. And at the same time, God's grace is magnified. Through the wonder and beauty of the gospel, Christ is punished for our sins and we are gifted His righteousness so that we stand before God right in His sight. Or again, to use the language of verse 26, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, what can't be missed is that the cross demonstrates both God's justice and grace. And that's because the cross stands forever as a testimony to the fact that God takes sin seriously and that there is hope found in the Lord Jesus Christ who died to save sinners. In a lot of ways, then, this gets us right back to the heart of Reformation Day, doesn't it? Simply put, God is holy, and we are not. We need righteousness. And apart from righteousness, judgment awaits us. The question in the 16th century, the question today, and the question in the 1st century was this. Where do we get this righteousness? Where do we find it? How can a sinful man like me ever have righteousness? That's the question. I don't know if you're aware of this. I discovered this just this year, but apparently Hasbro organizes a Monopoly World Championship tournament every few years. You guys are not as excited about that as I am? Imagine winning that tournament for a second. Let's just say for giggles that, that you sort of entered and you you kept winning, you went all the way to the top, and, and that you somehow collected all sorts of money, and you acquired real estate like boardwalk and park place, and then you you loaded these things up with all the houses and hotels that you could fit on there. Let's say you win everything. You win the whole tournament, and after that game, you leave Monopoly money in tow, and you walk across the street, and you attempt to purchase actual real estate property. How far are you going to get? You're not going to get far at all. It's not real. It's not accepted currency, right? It's the wrong kind of money. Well, similarly, we need righteousness. And no amount of our good deeds, faithful efforts, or religious devotion will ever be enough. Like the monopoly money, it is is of the wrong kind. Beloved, we need a divine righteousness. And that is exactly what we have in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? The good news of the gospel is not just that Christ's death forgives our sins. That's great news. But also that by His life, we are counted righteous. Consider this, Christian, the very righteousness we so desperately need. It is revealed in the gospel. And beloved, it is given to us in Christ as we receive Him, and rely on Him, and rest in Him. Brothers and sisters, all we need, we have in Christ. Let's give thanks to God. Father, we pray that you would be exalted in our time together this morning. That even right now, the hearts of your people will be looking to Christ, trusting in Christ, adoring Christ for who he is and what he has done on our behalf. We pray that you would strengthen us in grace and that we would be a people who put no confidence in the flesh, but that all of our confidence would be in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.